Well, good morning. Uh, before I get into our text for today, I, I did want to mention, um, and man, that was such a ministry to sing those songs, uh, be reminded of God's grace and his kindness toward us and that we have a future and uh, that future is good despite all the hardships that we might face uh, in this life. Um, in the last 10 days, I think it was, we have lost two people from our church family. Uh, Sherry Carter died Friday, October 1st, and uh, Sean Reno died just this last Friday, October 8th. And uh, Sherry's husband is Steve. They have a daughter, Chloe. And then uh, Sean's wife's name is uh, Tamara. And they have children, four children, Nathaniel, Uriah, Liliana, and Isaiah. And so as you can imagine, they are in uh, great, great grief right now. And uh, we grieve with them. I wanted to just say a couple of things for us to keep in mind as a church Family, you you may not know these families at all, but you are family, and so just some encouragement to all of us. I, I think one of the sweetest things that I have seen in these last few days has been the outpouring of prayer, where you have come alongside these two families and prayed for them faithfully and persistently, and uh, you know so many of us asked God for healing. And uh, we lost these two people. But we have to remember that when we ask for healing, sometimes we get it in this life, but we most definitely get it in the next. So God is good. He answers our prayers, sometimes not in the way that we would like. But we uh, continue to come back to him and say and sing and pray the things that we have sung this morning. Holy is the Lord. He is good. A couple of thoughts on body life. Paul said in Romans 12, 15, to weep with those who weep. So that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with weeping. And uh, we all grieve differently. And so uh, really important for us to come alongside one another and make room for grief. And uh, let that happen. Let that, that process take place. God is plenty big. To handle our sadness. And then uh, sometimes we just need to sit in silence with one another. Just be there. Um, I know the Carters were in the Foster's community group. And I know Steve has said again and again what a ministry that group has been to them. So thank you to Jeff and Debbie who lead that group. But everyone in that group that came alongside uh, the Carters. Um, Best of all, we don't grieve without hope. And uh, we just sang about it. I want to read it from Revelation 21, but this is our future. And this is why we can be incredibly sad, greatly discouraged, and yet still hold on to a beautiful word of hope. John writes this, When I saw a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Interesting going from funeral imagery to wedding imagery. Isn't that interesting? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be a day when mourning ceases. And death shall be no more. Death is a defeated enemy. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Praise be to God. That is good news. So thank you, church, for loving on these families. And um, that care that we have provided doesn't end at a funeral. In many ways, it just begins. And we come alongside one another to walk through uh, a path of mending. So thank you for doing that. All right. Uh, If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. We are continuing our study there. And this passage today is, uh, and I'm sure this won't be the last time me or Jeff say this, but this is going to be a challenge in some ways, but it's okay. I want to read this passage, and then I'm going to come at it a little bit differently. You know, we typically just kind of work our way straight through a passage, but really felt like this week I needed to do that a little differently. So let's start by reading the text from start to finish, and then... uh, And then we'll get rolling here. This is beginning in chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present... We do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The big idea in this passage, and and here's a little Bible study methods uh, tactic, um, It isn't always just the first thing that grabs your attention. And there's a lot in this passage that probably grabs our attention, right? Lots of questions that we have. What does he mean? Why did he say that? Who are those people and things and everything else? 
The, the big idea here, this is where we want to start, is actually in chapter 2, verse 1, and it's stated this way, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Everything else in this passage goes back to that statement, finds its direction in that. And in this statement, we have a danger, we have a safeguard, and we have a message. And that message was previously heard by the receivers of this letter, but it is progressively being ignored. That's why the letter was written to begin with. So we have a danger, a safeguard, and a message. Now, when I say danger, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in the book of Hebrews, we have five what are typically known as warning passages. I, I urged you to think of them as exhortation passages. And there are a variety of ways that people interpret those passages or understand their purpose. So I want to give you four views on the who and what of these five passages that are located throughout the book. We're going to hit the first one today in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here are the four views. The first we'll call the hypothetical view. And that is that despite the warnings and exhortations that we find in these passages, they're really just empty threats. It's really just, you know, like a dad saying, you know what, I'm going to pull this car over. And he never does, but, you know, he's saying that to get his kids' attention, right? Um, that's the first view, and uh, I just, I don't think there's any evidence at all in the scriptures that God ever utters an empty threat. He does what he says all the time. Secondly, uh, the evangelistic view, and that is that these passages are written primarily for the benefit of unbelievers. The problem with that is, <laughs> I think the whole book is written to Jewish Christians. And he says again and again, he calls them beloved and friends and brothers and sisters. And the, the whole tenor of the letter is, we are family. You are redeemed and you ought to act like it. So to say that it's evangelistic, I, I, I'm not sure. Certainly God can use it that way. An unbeliever could read these texts and be challenged and affected by it. But I'm not sure that they're really the primary aim of the writer. The third view, which is incredibly common and hotly debated, is um, what I'm calling the conditional view. And that is that justification is really at stake in the context of these warnings or these exhortations. In other words, if you don't follow them, you could lose salvation. You could lose justification. You've probably heard us say it before, but Jeff and I will say it again, that we believe wholeheartedly in the idea of eternal security, said a different way, once saved, always saved. And I want to give you some reasons for that. I, this is incredibly important because if you read these passages believing that they are about you losing your salvation, I think it is going to take you down because you will never be good enough. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need Christ is because we can't be good enough. But the minute you enter into a performance-based salvation, you got to perform. 
And there's not a person in this room or on this planet that can perform enough to earn the grace of God. Here's some encouragement around the idea of eternal security. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. This tells us how we're saved. By grace, through faith, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You can't take credit for being saved, and you certainly can't take credit for being lost or losing it. You ask and receive, period. That's it. And he promises to give it. If we can't do anything to earn our salvation, then it makes sense that there would be nothing that we could do afterward to lose it. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son, we just heard, by grace through faith, has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's really that simple. And notice it's called eternal life. So eternal life can't be temporary life. And it can't be conditional life. You either have it or you don't. And if you have it, it's eternal. The idea, we're cel- we celebrated communion today, that Jesus died for our sins. So which sins? How many sins? See, if he died for just a portion of them, in other words, he... he if he only died for the ones that we, that we performed prior to conversion, then what do you do with what comes next? I haven't met a person yet that was sinless after they came to Christ. So it must be that Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And if that is the case, then there isn't a sin that we can perform that would be unforgivable. Christ's blood is sufficient to cover our sin. Then John 6, 37 through 40, I won't read the entire passage, but Jesus himself says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That seems really clear. Never. Doesn't give any conditions, doesn't give any exceptions. He just says, if you come to me by grace, through faith, I will never cast you out. And he says, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, asks and receives, should have eternal life. And the promise is, I will raise Him up on the last day. Once saved, always saved. So I think the conditional view really misses the mark on how to understand these warning passages. So... The last view that I will commend to you is the disciplinary view. And that is that these passages are exhortations and very serious ones. So I'm not making this light. But serious exhortations to believers who have become complacent. Um, If you want to write down these five words, they will summarize these five passages These are exhortations to those who have drifted, to those who are deceived, to those who are disinterested, to those who are defiant, and to those who are in denial. We're going to see the first step in that today. 
And if we're speaking of discipline, then that must really mean something in this life and in the next. So here are some passages that will help us uh, understand that. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32, Paul was writing to the church that was violating the very meal that we just took. You can read about that in chapter 11, but here's what he says. Because of your violation of God's uh, meal that he gave you to remember the blood of Christ, uh, he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. That's a key phrase, again, for the purpose here. If we're judged, we're disciplined, not punished, not kicked out, not forsaken. We're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. But don't miss weak, ill, and, and death. Those are some pretty severe consequences. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul said there was a man in the church. He was in rebellious sin. And Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? Not so that he could be kicked out of heaven, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Paul writes to his disciple Timothy, holding, fat, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So you see here, we're told the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So whatever he is doing from a disciplinary perspective, it is not to forsake, it is to transform. And it is to draw us ever nearer. With all of that in mind, let's come back to our big idea. Paul says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Danger, safeguard, and message. The danger is the drift. Now, what does that mean to drift? How would you know if that's happening? Literally, the picture is to flow by or past or to slip away, to get off course. And a beautiful picture of this from 2019, the Priscilla. It's a cargo ship. Let me tell you a little story about the Priscilla. An officer took over watch at 2 in the morning. He turned off track steering and switched to the vessel's autopilot. Now, I'm telling you guys, there, I haven't come across a better illustration of what it means to spiritually drift than this. So listen carefully. He then began watching music videos on his mobile phone. He might have even fallen asleep. When the officer realized they were off course, which was at 4 a.m., two, two hours later, he decided to steer the ship between two small islands that he could see ahead. He relied solely on radar data and did not refer to navigational information, which would have showed there was a reef beneath the surface between those two islands. Though he could have easily regained the planned route, he chose an alternative route. 
that placed the vessel in imminent danger. The bridge navigational watch alarm system was switched off. The officer responded to two verbal warnings from shore authorities highlighting the danger ahead. The second warning told him that there were rocks ahead and clear water to the south, a way of escape. The action he took to to respond to these warnings suggested he did not fully understand the situation. No surprise. And how to turn the vessel away from danger. It's not clear, a report said, why the officer did not try to return to the planned route when he realized the vessel had drifted off course. He might have been anxious about his perceived mistake of allowing the vessel to drift off track. And here's the key. Might not have wanted to alert the master of the vessel who he did not call. That's where the Priscilla ended up. On the rocks. Shipwrecked. Paul writes to Timothy... This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Pay attention. By rejecting this, by becoming complacent, some have made shipwreck of their faith. These exhortations, beginning with the one today, are written to those who are in danger of shipwreck. And like the shore authorities, as they reached out to this officer who had kind of lost his way, the writer of Hebrews recommends a safeguard. And it's nothing really complicated. Pay much closer attention. Pay much closer attention. That's the safeguard. And it reminds me that following Christ takes incredible intentionality. I haven't met a person yet that drifted into maturity. Not a single one. But plenty who have drifted into a ditch. Just because they stopped paying attention. I've done that as well. I'm I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about, right? We've all been there. Spiritual growth, make no mistake, is by God's grace, absolutely. But it is also by His design a matter of faithful focus. For whatever reason, God made that part of the equation. Listen to these references. Joshua 1.8. This was the leader that followed Moses after leading Israel out of captivity and uh, through the wilderness and into the promised land. This is what the Lord says to Joshua. This book of the law, this navigational data that you need shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Paul writes in Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
Great intentionality, great focus, paying attention. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Specifically, the writer of Hebrews is urging us and them to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's our safeguard. And based on chapter 1, we know that God has spoken. He started with the prophets. Then he spoke through his son. And that message about his son, that is the key to staying on track. Now, we get a sense of that message in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. So again, I'm moving around a little bit in our passage here, but hopefully this is all making sense. This is the ministry of the message. This is the content that we need to focus on that will help us stay on track. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the most difficult part of this passage, primarily because there are so many pronouns, and you got to be asking again and again, who in the world is he talking about? And what, what are the reference points here? This actually provides a great broad summary of God's redemptive plan, and the writer uses Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, as part of his recollection of the redemptive story. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase what I think he's trying to communicate here. Humankind, though created lower than the angels, like not with the same powers and understanding and all of that that angels have, they still have always been very precious to God. And from the very beginning, they were crowned with glory and honor. They were said to be made in the image of God. Then not only that, they were given dominion over everything. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So all of creation was entrusted to that first couple. They were called stewards of that. They were supposed to have dominion to rule over it for the glory of God. Now at present... We don't currently see all of creation under the perfect dominion of humanity, right? Because of the fall. Uh, A lot of creation is out of control, so we don't yet see that. But in verse 9, here's the contrast. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. 
I want to take this passage beginning in 8b and I want to insert some references for those pronouns that will hopefully make sense of what the, what the writer is doing. Basically saying, you've got humanity. They were created with glory and honor and dominion. But because of the fall, they have not accomplished what uh, was intended. Thanks be to God, he provided one who was also made lower than the angels, who does have dominion, who is crowned with glory, and who will bring everything into uh, rightness. Um, I'm going to give you the first passage here with some insertions uh, beginning in 8b. This is from the ESV. Now, in putting everything in subjection to humankind, God left nothing outside of their control. Again, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to them. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering so that by the, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That verse 9 is confusing in terms of its order and kind of if, then, that, what. So let's look at the Christian Standard Bible translation. I think this says it much better. The first is the same, but look in verse 9. We do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, and he is crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Hopefully that brings some clarity there. Though all of creation isn't what it should be, it will be because Jesus is all we need him to be. And he is seated in a place of authority, and he is bringing all of history to his desired destination, which is also the Father's desired destination. So in terms of a message, F.F. Bruce says this, there's no greater messenger than the Son, who's referenced here, and there's no further message needed beyond the gospel. When we have that, we have what we need. Jesus, our Savior, is seated at the right hand of the Father where no angel was ever invited to sit, nor will an angel ever be invited. And with that amazing message in uh, mind, it's easy to see why the writer urged this first audience and us as well not to make too much of messengers. And I, I guess, let me just say this as an aside, because I thought it was it was at least a possible application for us. And I have been thinking and talking a lot about this just in recent couple of years. Um, in the same way that these folks made much of angels, we make much of Christian celebrities. As if they're special. They have something to offer us that just not everybody does. That they could somehow, quote, save us. I think the writer of Hebrews, if he were alive today, I, I think he would say, don't make too much of messengers, celebrity, Christian leaders, because they can't do anything for you that Jesus can do. You need him, not them. They should be pointing all of your attention to the Savior, not to themselves. But 
Back to the writer of Hebrews, verse 13. He says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Believers? Verse 13 contains a direct quote from Psalm 110. Uh, One commentator says this is the key passage for the message of this letter. It's also the most often quoted psalm in all of our New Testament. A bunch of the writers use this psalm or parts of it uh, in a variety of their letters. Psalm 110 says this. This is David writing about his Lord. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the quote that the writer of Hebrews is using. The interesting thing is the two references to Lord here are two different words. One refers to God the Father, Yahweh, and the other refers to God the Son, Adonai. So God the Father says to God the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. No angel was ever told those words. No angel is destined to have their enemies as as a footstool. Those only refer to Jesus. Angels are servants, not masters. They are ministering spirits. Think of them as spiritual priests. And they were created to serve at the pleasure of God and for the good of his people. So the writer of Hebrews cautions us about making too much of angels or messengers, couriers of the message. And at the same time, he urges us to pay much closer attention to what they proclaim. Now, why is that? Why the emphasis on the message? And it's because of the great cost of neglecting it. So we'll finish with the cost of complacency. If we don't pay attention to this message, what should we expect? Verse 2 of chapter 2. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. And then he goes on to talk about the reliability of this message that is being neglected. Now, it's not obvious here, but there are two messages that are being referenced. The first was that, uh, the message that the angels delivered, which would have been the Old Testament law. Um, You can look in Galatians 3, um, And you'll see that reference that it it was understood that angels delivered God's message to Israel in the form of the law. But then there's a second message, a more contemporary message that was delivered by Jesus. And he delivered that personally. He is the letter. He is the message, right? But then also all that he taught, all that he said, he told his disciples not only to remember that, but to deliver that to others. That was their responsibility, was to continue promoting that message. In essence, the idea here is that truth comes with consequences. In the Old Testament, 
along with the law, there was a very long list of consequences of neglecting the law, of disobedience. And there was a cost. There, was, there were consequences for disobeying the law. In the New Testament, neglect is still costly. I mentioned that earlier, that the discipline of the Lord, that's not pleasant. We're supposed to receive it and be transformed by it. But wouldn't it be better to be disciplined just simply for pure growth rather than being disciplined for correction? Like you're shipwrecked and I need to get you back on track. The cost here mentioned in chapter 2 verse 1 that where we started is drifting. Now what is that? Missing God's best in this life. And I don't know what that means to you, but I wonder how many people at the end of their life look back with great regret. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And we can look back and think of, gosh, I wish I would have. Well, a life that drifts, that's usually how the story ends. It's full of regret. Running your faith aground. Just getting to that place where you feel aimless spiritually. And when life gets really hard and kicks you in the face, you feel a little bit like, I don't know what to do with that. That can be a result of discipline, I mean of drifting. And there is a loss of eternal reward mentioned. You don't lose your salvation. You, you will go to heaven. But there will be a loss of reward. And I don't know exactly what that's like, but I, I think I'd rather get my reward, you know? We're told in verses 3 and 4 that we are without excuse. Basically, the, me the message has been triple verified. It was declared first by the Lord in his life and his teaching and his death and resurrection. Then it was attested to those who tested by those who heard it. So the apostles, there's apostolic authority. It was written down and could have been refuted, but it wasn't. So for us, I, I realize we're 2,000 years removed, but in some ways it's like, who are we to diminish what was preserved by the very people who could have said, yeah, that never happened, but they didn't. Lastly, God bore witness by signs, wonders, miracles, and spiritual gifts. There was a supernatural quality about the message that urged everyone that it was worth believing and would change their lives. So I think the, the takeaway here, the thing to consider is, are you drifting? I, I, I've tried to paint a picture. I think the, the writer of Hebrews has as well of what that might look like. And it, you don't have to be shipwrecked like the Priscilla. You don't have to be stuck on the rocks, but you certainly could be off course. And the only way that I can see to get back on course is to do exactly what he has said, and that is to pay much closer attention. And if you and I can't be honest about what gets our attention, then we're not going to make a single change. So I, I want to ask you to ask God to show you 
what is getting your attention these days? And one of the best ways to, to see that clearly is to look at what gets your time. And I, I can go throughout a day and I can think about all the ways that I entertain myself, that I distract myself, um, that I just check out, whatever. There's all kinds of stuff there. And I will get to the end of the day on many of occasions and I'll think, there's so much more I could have done with my time today. The writer of Ephesians says, make the most of your time for the days are evil. And evil days, for those who are not paying attention, leads to drifting. So ask the Lord. Lord, am I drifting? Maybe you are shipwrecked in the moment. Have you told anybody? Have you asked for help? Lots of great opportunities here for growth and for change. So just take a moment. Prayerfully consider that as your so what, and then I'll pray for us to close. just pray, Father, that you would give us some real clarity about where we may have uh, drifted. And you're a good Father. You're so kind to, to show us when we're off course. You always, always, always show us a way of escape. As a good Father, you're always glad to welcome us home. So, Lord, whatever it is you have exposed today, um, Lord, would you give us the humility and the dependence to cry out for help from you first, and then, Lord, from this community of faith that surrounds us, Lord, would you help us to help each other to pay attention? We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.